Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, City Council received a briefing on the 2026 Commonwealth Games bid yesterday. They're going to have to wait till September to get some more details, though. We'll tell you what happened and what's going to happen going forward. And with reports of unusual spending at Rideau Hall and concerns about the Governor General and, of course, ethics concerns in Ottawa, uh, we're going to get Duff Conagher from uh, Democracy Watch on to talk about what's happening up on the Hill. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's uh, get back into this meeting that uh, the City Council had with the Commonwealth Committee. We've had a number of people from the committee on this program, of course, in the last little while. And uh, to try to give you both sides of this, as a matter of fact, David Grevenberg, who is the global CEO of the Commonwealth Games, will join us a little bit later on this hour. But I'm more interested at this stage about the reaction from City Council, because at some point they're going to have to make an up-and-down decision on this. And uh, there was mixed reaction from the councillors yesterday. Uh, Ward 4 Councillor Sam Marula looked at the presentation and and came up, well, this perspective. People are living in tents. We will never ever have another opportunity in one decision to make 10 years worth of affordable housing units become reality. There are others, though, that, uh, well, some were skeptical. Some had some, I think, very legitimate questions to ask, and um, we're not necessarily satisfied with some of those answers. Uh, Upper Stony Creek Council Brad Clark was one of those from Ward 9. He joins us here on the Bill Keller Show uh, to talk about some of those concerns. Brad, thanks so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Bill. Brad, just first of all, give me an overview on what you heard yesterday and your, and your thoughts on it. Um, I heard a sales pitch uh, that I felt was... Um, more designed to building a bandwagon effect than providing substantive answers to many questions that the councillors have been asking for almost two years now. So let's let's peel back some of the layers here and, and find out exactly what the concerns are. Uh, we, you know, we heard about and, and we've talked about on the, on the news here this morning, of course, about things like affordable housing. We'll talk about that, but. Uh, this is not the first time council's been presented with something like this. I mean, when I was on council way back in the day, uh, we were approached about a Commonwealth Games bid within the city. Of course, we got on that, and we, I guess, finished second, as it turned out. But it was a rather complex situation, uh, and uh, there's a, a, a series of things that have to happen and a series of things that have to be presented before council before they, uh, they can actually make a decision as to whether or not they want to move forward on this. And I'm getting the sense that you don't feel as if that information has been provided yet. No, it hasn't, and and you know, we're still looking for financial information. Our staff are still looking for financial information. We're trying to understand the budget. The original proposal was one and a half billion for the 2030. Now they've pared it back to 1.1 billion, but they didn't provide us with any documentation showing where that 1.1 billion would be spent. And in the same breath, they uh, indicated that. The games would bring us 3,000 new affordable housing units at a cost of $1 billion. Well, if the budget for the games is $1.1 billion, then how are we getting a billion dollars of affordable housing out of that budget? And there was no answer to that. They cited uh, the Pan Am Games from 2015 uh, had an add-on of affordable housing, and I recall the 2015 games. It was a $1.4 billion project. They then had to increase um, the budget by $1.1 billion, $379 million for security, transportation, and affordable housing. 
and that was the provincial government that made that decision after the fact because they really needed to do those things to get the games off the ground. So you, for lack of a better expression, you're looking for a spreadsheet here, aren't you? Yes. We, um, of course, Bill. We, we need to understand the financials. We need to understand exactly what they're proposing. And they argued while they're trying to work with the city and they're planning on sitting down and meeting with each of the councillors. Well, that's not how it works. We, you know, you don't sit down with each of the councillors privately. You present the numbers publicly. You give them to our staff. We present them in public. We have the discussions and we move forward. And, and I, I, just, I find that incredibly frustrating. And then it's the timing of this, this games bit. I mean, we have a $3 billion capital infrastructure deficit with roads, bridges, sidewalks, affordable housing, as I mentioned, rec centers needing rebuild, pools needing re- lots of things, and a long list of new capital projects that will now be bumped if we go to the, 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 this, this Commonwealth Games. And so that's frustrating. And in my ward, I'm getting complaints all the time about sidewalks. I have 4,000 sidewalks in my ward that need repair. They're trip hazards. I don't have the money. I can't get the money to repair those. It's, it's a multi-year project, that, and it's incredibly frustrating that we're now talking about a Commonwealth Games bid when we don't have our, our basic services uh, in check for this municipality. Brad, uh, talk to me about the, the assertion here about uh, federal and provincial funds that are going to be a part of this. Uh, and, and obviously from your perspective as a former cabinet minister in a provincial government and now as a city councillor for a number of years right now, uh, is it is it a, an assumption that the feds in the province would step forward here? I mean, they always have traditionally, but uh, these are different times. And we really, so, as far as I can see anyway, have not heard any commitment from either level of government right now that they're going to jump in on this. They keep using the terminology in principle. Um, and historically, the feds on Commonwealth Games will pay 50% of the cost. The province pays 25%, and the municipality pays 25%. And this has been a long-standing, it's a long-standing formula. In this case, what we're being told is that the senior levels of government are going to pick up the largesse of it, upwards of 80%. We've not received any confirmation from the province that they've agreed to to pick up that amount of money. And then on top of that, we have a promise in the bid document that they provided us yesterday indicating that there will be no impact on the municipal levy. I'm still scratching my head on that. I, I, I honestly do not see in any way, shape, or form how there would be no impact on the levy, on, on the, the local property taxpayer. And so without having the financial numbers, without seeing... Uh, the spreadsheets and, 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 and the financial analysis, it's just a sales pitch. Let me ask you about timing here. And, and we're going to, in just a couple of minutes, have a discussion, of course, uh, with uh, one of the people that was involved in the meeting uh, yesterday uh, from the Commonwealth Games Committee. Of course, uh, Mr. Grevenberg is going to join us, and hopefully we'll try to get some specifics from, uh, from David in just a couple of minutes. But uh, we were told that uh, you were informed yesterday uh, that they'd like to get some sort of a commitment or an agreement in principle, I forget what the phrase is that they used on this, by the end of next month, i.e. the end of September. Uh, now, as you just mentioned, when you finally get those numbers and answers to some of these questions you've asked, uh, the protocol usually is, okay, let's throw this over to staff and let them do an analysis on this. Is there enough time to do all this stuff, Brad? No. Not in the timelines that the Commonwealth Games 
Federation is providing us. We were told that we needed to, to have the endorsement by the end of September. And so our staff have not received anything, uh, to my knowledge, about the 2026 game chat. And as a matter of fact, council hasn't even directed staff to do that financial assessment, which I raised yesterday, but um, it was there, there didn't seem to be an interest around the table to direct staff to do that assessment. So that in itself is, is, is equally frustrating. Has anybody had discussions? You said there's been no commitment from the feds of the province in the, on, for this bid. Uh, who's asking the questions? Has anybody contacted them? Is that the city's job? Is that the uh, the the committee's job, the, co- the Commonwealth Committee's job? I mean, who's doing what here? Uh, that's equally frustrating, Bill, because it's a private sector bid, so it's coming from um, community leaders, and and they're well intentioned, they're well informed, they're good people, they understand business, but they're having all of these discussions, and and we're not, the council's not in the loop in terms of who they're talking to, and what the answers are being, what answers are being provided. And so you're correct. The standard process is once they finally provide us that documentation, the financial spreadsheets, the accounting, all of that, then our staff now have to crunch those numbers and reach out to the different levels of government and see what's going on to, con- to verify. Um, that's going to be awfully tight if we meet in September, the beginning of September, and we're supposed to sign off by the end of the month. Is there any clarity here as to what the ask is for the city? I mean, when, when they say the city contribution, uh, is that cash? Is it, is it capital money? Is it services in kind? Uh, have, have, have they been specific about that? No. So you're not sure at this point, you're not even sure what they're asking of you at this stage? Not, not based on the document that we were provided yesterday. They kept hammering home. There would be no impact on the on the taxpayer. Well, I suppose there's a way to do that. Uh, you know, vis-a-vis uh, you know outsourcing other sources. I mean, I don't even know how much money you've got left in the future fund right now, but I know they used part of that, of course, to to fund the construction of the stadium for the Pan Am Games a few years ago. So, quote, you know, to, to use their quote, I mean, there was no impact on the tax levy because of that, but it's still taxpayers' money. Uh, you know, we're, I know we're splitting hairs, but I mean, you know, that's, that's one of the things that I guess is going to have to be, uh, you know, uh, looked at and, and something that's going to have to be uh, evaluated, I guess, when you t- start getting down to some hard and fast numbers. And, and we do need, we need those numbers so that we can understand what the risk is to the municipality. I, I'm not anti-games. I've supported past games. Um, I've, I've worked with the provincial government on past games and past sporting events. The city of Hamilton has an $800 million debt, a $3 billion um, infrastructure deficit. Uh, We have a $250 million Red Hill Valley Parkway class action lawsuit that is pending. We have the public inquiry. And then on top of it, we have COVID-19, and we do not know how the behavior of uh, residents in our community or in the surrounding communities, will change as a result of COVID-19. Will they attend international sporting uh, games? We, we, we do not have a handle on the long-term change to attitudes and behavior as a result of COVID-19. So there's tremendous risk here for the municipality, and without having those financial numbers in front of us, it's almost impossible for councillors to make an informed decision. And we've been at this for a year and a half, almost two years, Bill. 
I'm wondering about the effect of COVID-19. And we are talking six years out, and there seems to be talk about a vaccine. So I'm, I'm not looking at this through rose-colored glasses, but I'm not so sure that COVID is going to be a factor in this. But there's certainly a concern about about the money. And uh, I, and I, as you know, Brad, I've had a number of the people, including P.J. Mercanti and, and Lou Forporti and others on the program, who are members of this this group that are moving these 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 ideas forward. Did you get any sense at all about what their commitment is financially to this? No, I mean, it's no great. Fine. It's great there to see. No I've fine. seen. Sorry, I, I see, I've seen all the people. You know, and okay, this company, this company, and some pretty impressive uh, companies and names that are on that list there. But uh, are they going to pony up money for this? I mean, you know, is has the private sector going to jump in and absorb some of these costs or all of these costs? That's the indication from the organizers. Um, it, it has not been that way in other international games. The private sector generally does not pick up the largesse. So it would be incredibly unusual if the private sector was going to um, put all of the money in that the municipality would normally put in. Not saying it's not possible, but show me, show me the checks. Show me that this is happening before we commit, because once we commit, we're on the hook for the money, whether the private sector coughs it up or not. I know somebody asked about cost overruns, and, and I, I know that they've said that other past Commonwealth games have not had cost overruns. So many, many of them have come in under budget. But, uh, you know, <laughs> past is prologue. I mean, you're concerned about what's going to happen going forward. And like I say, they see different economic times. Uh, from a legal standpoint, if you make that commitment as a city, as a community, uh, do you feel that you're on the hook for any additional costs that might come up? Well, we don't know. Um, so... Historically, from my experience, the province of the feds have been the ones that have backstopped international games. So, like the Pan Am Games, that was backstopped by the province of Ontario. So they were the ones that had, if there was overruns, and there was, um, I mean, they went over budget, um, the province were, were the ones to pay for that. So there still has to be this agreement between the feds, uh, the province, and the municipality. Uh, which would be the next phase if council agrees to what is being proposed. Um, but we need to see much more information than what we have before council will ever get to that point. All legitimate concerns and all legitimate questions, and, and I can un- totally understand that you, you can't make an informed decision if you don't have that information in front of you, uh, and that hasn't been forthcoming to a, l- a large extent anyway. But uh, from, from a hypothetical standpoint, Brad, uh, your skepticism and your concern, I think, is, is well-placed here. But if you found out, if there was a commitment from the the private sector that are involved in this to say, we've got this covered, uh, and which is why there's not going to be any impact, would that change, alter your opinion, or, or would you buy that? It depends on what information that we're provided. So if it's, if it's a, 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 a promise without anything in writing, then um, I'm going to be remain skeptical. Uh, if they can demonstrate that, yeah, the, the private sector is going to cough up $300 million or whatever the, the, the total number is, um, and they can demonstrate it and we can verify that, that would be fantastic and we would all be celebrating. i got about a minute left here. What's, what's next here? You mentioned that uh, the council didn't even instruct staff to look into this and are you waiting for the commonwealth group to come back to you i mean you know the clock is ticking here for people that want to have this thing uh, you know decided one way or another uh, they made a commitment that they'd be coming back in in the beginning of september with um the information that we've requested that's in a couple of weeks then yes 
Well, uh, we'll anticipate that meeting when it comes up, certainly. And as I mentioned, in just a couple of minutes, we're going to talk with uh, uh, Mr. Grevenberg from the, uh, the Commonwealth Committee, too. Brad, as always, thanks so much for the time today. Hopefully we can uh, get some clarity on this, and uh, we'll see what happens going forward. Appreciate thanks, the time. Bill. Have a great day. You, too. Councilor Brad Clark. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's uh, continue our discussion about uh, the meeting yesterday at Hamilton City Council, uh, a virtual meeting, of course, about the Commonwealth Games bid and uh, a number of presentations that were made. You already heard from a couple of city councillors, uh, some supportive of this, very supportive of it, uh, others rather skeptical about this. Joining us now to talk about the bid itself, uh, David Grevenberg is with us. He's the global CEO of the Commonwealth Games Federation, and uh, he joins us this morning from the UK. Uh, David, welcome back. Great to have you on the show again today. Bill, it's great to hear your voice, and uh, yeah, good to be back in Hamilton. Let's let's talk a little bit about what happened yesterday, and uh, we were just talking with one of the councillors, specifically Brad Clark, who uh, raised some uh, rather important questions about money. What's let's come down to it, you know, about who's doing what, how much is this going to cost, and what contributions are being made. Uh, the concern that a lot of councillors mentioned uh, to you and to other people on the committee yesterday, David, was that they, this, there are no specifics here, or at least not enough to make them feel comfortable. How can you address something like that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's probably going to the purpose of yesterday's meeting wasn't to put forward a, a formal bid as a fait accompli. Um, this was really looking to enroll the council in a process of engagement by which uh, the councillors and, and, and obviously the governance and the management of the city council would really help to shape the opportunities, look at the feasibility assessments and try to align mu- as much recovery and regeneration uh, an investment around this bid and around this project as possible. So it really does have, you know, all of the uh, benefits uh, that we are putting out there that we believe it can have and that we have a track record of, uh, of delivering. So really the purpose of yesterday's meeting wasn't to come forward in a thumbs up or thumbs down proposal. It was to actually enroll people as part of the process so that we can really maximize everyone's input to to get the best project plan for hamilton um and 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 ontario and i think that's uh that's the uh there may have been some misalignment there but uh you know i, I was really grateful for the opportunity to to be able to just be there and, and, and support the the team but but also you know field questions Who's doing what here? That's one of the questions Councillor Clark raised with us uh, after the meeting yesterday. And by that, I mean uh, there's a, a group of private sector people here, and, you know, the, the Lou Forporti and, and P.J. McKinney and many, many others, of course, that are listed there, uh, who are the, the driving force behind this. Uh, there's talk about federal and provincial uh, assistance for this, as has always happened in previous games. But who's making those phone calls and who's in touch and who's actually driving the bus at this stage? Well, our, our member is Commonwealth Sport Canada. So yeah. Commonwealth Sport Canada has obviously brought a number of uh, games uh, to uh, to the fold, and they are and they have uh, really gone through an internal process within Canada that has given the preference and and, and preferential focus on Hamilton uh, because we're in a, a you know particularly uh, unique time. They are really driving the process to work with uh, Hamilton, and we we essentially are liaising um, with both. To provide support, um, we're actually uh, we have dedicated resources over the past year. Uh, we've, we've had a couple of visits through this process, and we're actually supporting the creation um, of uh, some of the proposals and some of the assessments. But what's critical, and what has really made the success of all other games, is when you get that municipal, provincial, 
and uh, national or central government, federal government support. Um, and everyone works around the table, uh, which is really the next phase. Um, and so, you know, it's, but it's absolutely critical that it starts at the municipal level in terms of making sure it's right for, uh, you know, the, the, the public sector, the private sector, and the third sector or nonprofit sectors uh, in the North American sense uh, to, to make sure that, you know, this is, this is the right time and the right, uh, you know, the right investments uh, to be made around this. And so we're, we're supporting that process. Um, we have changed our partnership model to be much more in a, uh, a full, uh, you know, involved at this stage and along the entire journey. Uh, which is something we uh, we really started in, in, in Birmingham, but we also have a, a track record of success that really dates back uh, to Manchester in 2022. Uh, sorry, in 20, uh, 2002. Um, and uh, yeah, that's uh, we're, we're we're trying to capitalize on best practice and lessons learned, and uh, really uh, help Hamilton come up with a, a really good proposal. This is a different attitude, though. I mean, this is. Uh, the third time, I guess, that Hamilton's actually been involved in, in a bid uh, for Commonwealth Games. I was a city councilor back when the first one happened. It was all 20 years ago, I guess, now. Uh, and and the, the attitude of... of, of to be exact, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The attitude back then, David, seemed to be from the committee members, and I'm not trying to be flippant here, was just, well, show us what you got, and we'll decide where we're going to go with this. You're taking a much more hands-on approach to these games and, and, and working with the community and with uh, some of the private sector partners. Yes, and, and 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 that's that's exactly it. This is a this is uh, um, not a again not a fait accompli and not a top down process. Um, this is a much more uh, partnership driven delivery model that all levels um, of government, um, all critical partners are around the table, working together, pulling in the same direction to benefit. I mean, people and uh, and the communities, um, and, and this. Uh, has really been an alignment exercise that we uh, have, have really focused on over the past, uh, I would say, eight years since I became the, the chief executive um, after the success of Glasgow 2014. I was fortunate and privileged enough to become the chief executive of the Commonwealth Games Federation, and we created uh, a strategy called Transformation 2022, which speaks to this different model and this different way of working. And, uh, and, I, and dare I say, in Glasgow and in Gold Coast, um, and now in Birmingham, we're having uh, you know, great success. Yes, there are challenges that arise through hosting, but we maximize um, our, uh, the benefits of our partnership to work through challenges and address them and to bring things in on time and under budget. You know, that is our goal. Talk to me about government involvement in this. As I say, you've been involved in this and from an administrative standpoint for many, many years. You were a participant way back in the day, too, uh, in, in, in past games. Uh, but as you know, David, from your experience, governments move at glacial speed, uh, and you're going to need some commitments from these people, and it's a pretty short time frame. Is that concerning? Well, you know, we have, I mean, one of the things we're saying is that, uh, you know, if, if the time frames that we've set out in terms of, you know, our ability to provide support, um, aren't sufficient. Well, what time frames are sufficient, and uh, what you know, what are the time frames that government uh, you know is likely to work to? I mean, I think the point that we were trying to make yesterday is that you know eventually we do need to make a decision on is this you know is this a real uh, prospective uh, host, and is there real support, uh, both community support and governmental support, um, to to 
to, to maximize and, 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 and benefit from this proposition, or, or is it just not the right time? And I think what we're, you know, what we're hopeful for and what we strongly believe is that, um, that you know, governments right now, particularly with the challenges that they are facing regarding recovery as well as accelerating regeneration, that this is an opportunity. We have seen this. I mean, I can tell you from my own experience as the chief executive for an organizing committee, right when the uh, financial crisis hit in 2008, um, how we use the games as a stimulus package, both economically and socially, to really uh, uh, accelerate regeneration um, and, and to really weather, uh, weather the austerity storm. And, you know, so there's a number of best practice examples, but, you know, what we need to do is get everyone around the table um, and really see what we can do with this uh, opportunity. And is it uh, ultimately, at the end of the day, um, the, the, you know, the right time, but also the right return on investment? There, there are always going to be challenges, and I know that people are looking at COVID-19 and, and the economic downturn that we've seen here, uh, and I know that that was part of the, uh, the the presentation yesterday was about the economic benefit, which could serve as a catalyst. I think people tend to forget, I mean, from a historical standpoint, Hamilton, of course, hosted the first ever, what they called the British Empire Games back in those days. Uh, in Hamilton, that was in the, that was during the Depression, David, uh, and it it took, I'm sure, a lot of courage by that city council to say, you know what, we're gonna we're gonna do this and 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 reap the benefits of it, and we did. As you say, we had two legacy projects from that: the stadium, and of course, the swimming pool, which still stands there, uh, right across from the stadium. So it, it's it, there's never going to be a hundred percent guarantee that everything's going to go fine. Every everything has risk. We understand that, uh, and the economic risks uh, have to be weighed against the benefits, which I guess comes all the way back down to what Councillor Clark and a number of other people were asking about: is uh, show us the spreadsheet, show us you know how much this is going to cost, who's contributing what, uh, and I got the sense from from him yet on this discussion today, David, that council can't make a decision until they actually see those numbers. Now, is that going to be happening when that group comes back to council in, uh, in early September? Well, what this what what the, what the uh, local bid group is at Hamilton twenty twenty six bid team um, is really seeking uh, to do is that yes, they are working on a number of options and plans. And what they said yesterday, um, and, and it's very true, is that there's options. It's really what the community and what Hamilton wants to do with those options, which will really determine the definitive, uh, the, de- the definitive number, if you will. So, uh, and that's and that's not that's not a chicken or egg scenario. Of course, they can they can put together different scenarios and different costs related to those options. But ultimately, you need to be able to pick what is going to be optimal, and that needs to be done with. Uh, the municipal government and and, and with the uh, Hamilton City Council uh, and and the community to really say okay this is this is worth uh, we we need to regenerate this facility uh, we refurbish this we want to actually uh, we want to invest in the creation of a new facility or actually no we don't we want to actually we can host that we can host this event in this location instead of that location those are some of the questions that need a joined up community led approach. To, to really make those, you know, make those uh, important decisions, which then uh, creates the budget. So it is, there is a, it's kind of a sequence to this. And yesterday was very much focused on, you know, enrolling the council as a, as a partner in that process um, and aligning it. I think the important thing is aligning it to current uh, uh, recovery needs as well as 
how do we accelerate regeneration? And I think those two pieces were, were very important. To that to that end, then, David, what was your impression of the meeting yesterday? How how was the presentation received? And and are you as optimistic, more optimistic, or less optimistic than before the meeting? Well, you know, I, I mean, I, I have the privilege of, of working with a number of municipal municipalities. Uh, you know, I, I did I did sense some apprehension, and, and obviously, uh, you know, many councillors, uh, you know, are both supportive. Some are, uh, I think, uh, you know, more cautious, um, and, and others are. You know, I, I would say, uh, you know, uh, probably not supportive at this at this point in time. Um, you know, I, I I would I would say that, you know, what we sought to be was professional, prepared, um, and we did you know we we did prepare, we, we did rehearse, um, and you know we wanted to be considered, but 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 very respectful uh, that this is about offering the hand of friendship and partnership, and and moving things forward. And I, I, I very specifically uh, sought uh, to, to both address uh, Councillor Clark and, and, and Councillor Jackson's concerns that I, I, I know were, were fairly uh, publicly made, um, and that and to give some reassurance. Um, and I, you know, we need to we need to be on this journey together. So, you know, one of the things I did highlight on a number of occasions, and I really encourage everyone uh, to to go to the Hamilton 2026 website. Take a look at uh, some of the reports. Uh, there's, a, there's an extensive report that, that, that uh, was conducted by PricewaterhouseCoopers that really looks into the, the past benefits of hosting Commonwealth Games and a track record, a consistent track record of, of delivering value. And what we really just wanted to get across uh, to people was, let's take this journey together. Let's work and uh, push, uh, you know, push things as far as we possibly can uh, for the benefit of uh, the people in the community around Hamilton. And uh, that's the first step. That's, that was the prerogative. So I, I think we had a good opportunity to start that dialogue. Um, it's the first time I had the, the privilege of presenting to council, and uh, I look forward. It, it is a little bit different and hard when you're doing it virtually from the U.K. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, instead of around the, around the table, which I would much prefer, but uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully in the in the future we'll we'll have that opportunity. There are some councillors who are adamantly opposed to this. Some, as you say, are enthusiastically supportive of this, and there are some that are sitting on the fence, which is not unusual for any elected body, I would think. But when they do see these numbers and when they do see the breakdown, which we're hoping is going to be just after Labor Day, of course, uh, and when they they come back to the committee. Uh, do you feel confident that the, that number and that presentation and that picture that's going to be presented could sway some of those people that, that are, are sitting on the fence right now? Yeah, I, th- I think I have to go back to the, the point that, you know, the, the council has the opportunity to help shape those numbers and, and, and to be a part of this process to, 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 with the community to decide on what is best for the council and the community. And so I think this is very much not just a simple one-way engagement process, but an enrollment process by which people can, you know, get around the table and see does that work, and you know, what are the uh, competing demands, but but also what are the opportunities, and I and I have to say that uh, I think how we innovate, how we collaborate, how we consolidate in some respects uh, our, our efforts actually gets a better return, and I think that's that's past practice, and we remain here to support that process, to support the council, support Commonwealth for uh, Canada, as well as, uh, as well as Hamilton 2026, 
you know, and and pushing forward a proposal that works for Hamilton. Uh, you mentioned yesterday, as as you've told us in past discussions as well, David, that, uh, that the end of September is really kind of a, a hard and fast date. Uh, that doesn't seem to be very flexible. That, you've got to be able to, to move on or, or, you know, if there's a plan B. I don't know. Hopefully there wouldn't need to be, but I think, you never know. Yeah, I think, yeah, but I, I think that to, to, to clarify, uh, you know, that, that, that date, if, if there is the need and I, and I think I may have mentioned this a little bit earlier. Was that if there is a need to be flexible in those time time frames, let's let's talk about that. I think you know again, the, yesterday was the first opportunity we've had uh, the chance to discuss uh, what we have done is we've committed our our full focus and resources and our exclusive dedication at this point in time. You know, in terms of our own support, because um, we are putting resources into this, we are. Uh, when I say resources, that's both time and money and expertise uh, into this project uh, on an exclusive basis. And what we want to do is to really, uh, but we need to also understand, okay, is this moving? Is there buy-in? Is this something that uh, that, that, that ultimately the, the people and, and city of Hamilton want to pursue for 2026? Well, we're certainly going to stay on top of this and uh, watch for some updates on this. And, uh, well, it's a, a time frame that, uh, that we're looking at here right now, too, and we want to see just how council is going to respond to this. We will, of course, be talking to uh, some of the other folks in the private sector and the big group as well. And, uh, again, encourage people to go to the, uh, the web page uh, to try to get some more details. David, as always, thank you so much for uh, taking some time up from your very busy day to talk with us today. I'm sure we'll talk again it's soon in just a couple of weeks. Uh, well, look forward to it, and thank you so much, and uh, look forward to working with Hamilton. Thank you. Thank you. David Grevenberg, the global CEO of the Commonwealth Games Federation, joining us from the U.K. this morning. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. With reports of unusual and perhaps unnecessary spending at Redo Hall uh, to protect the Governor General's privacy and allegations of verbal abuse by the Governor General and her staff towards other staff members, uh, there's a great deal of scrutiny that's going on right now about how we do government here. And uh, there's obviously some concerns about conflicts of interest, which uh, seem to have been reaching epic proportions with some members of the government. Joining us to talk about all this is Duff Conniger, who is the co-founder of Democracy Watch, adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa. Uh, Duff, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us again today. My pleasure. Let's uh, talk, first of all, about the Governor General. Then I want to get into ethics, because I know that uh, uh, it's uh, something that you've talked to the House of Commons Access to Information Committee about, and we'll get into that. we all know, of course, about the accusations from a CBC report about uh, Governor General Julie Payette and uh, uh, some spending on Rideau Hall, and uh, also uh, about uh, some treatment of staff members, some staff members anyway, which apparently has caused a number of people to actually leave the employee of the Governor General's office. Uh, just before we get your read on this, uh, this uh, is Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland, and uh, when she was asked, uh, does the government still support the Governor General, here's her response. I think Canadians have a great respect for the office of the Governor General, and I have that respect as well. But for this Governor General? As I said, uh, I think Canadians understand and appreciate the way our system of government, our constitutional system works. The Governor General, the office of the Governor General plays a very important role in that system. Uh, anyway, uh, master of evasion, uh, uh, once again, which is not unusual, I guess, for politicians. Tough uh, from a, a legal standpoint, I mean, I, I heard some people, you know, reacting to this over the weekend and say, well, you know, she's got to get fired. You can't fire a governor general, can you? Uh, well, the governor general is the queen's representative. Yeah. And it used to be the, the monarch. Uh, 
in England, the Queen or King actually appointed the Governor General with there would be some advice, even going back to the early days of Canada, from the uh, Governor and Council, as it was known and is written in our Constitution, known as the Cabinet now, uh, as the common phrase that people use for it. Um, but for decades, the uh, the Governor General has been appointed by the uh, Queen on the advice of the Prime Minister, and could be removed on the advice of the Prime Minister if the Queen agreed that uh, the removal was was uh, for proper reasons, essentially. I mean, the Queen is sovereign and could agree to the removal even if it was for improper reasons. But the Queen is supposed to be there somewhat as a safeguard against the Prime Minister uh, who would be abusing their powers, trying to get rid of the, a Governor-General who uh, may be in some way challenging the Prime Minister in terms of following the law. But it is possible. Which I don't think is occurring here. I mean, these seem to be uh, behavioral concerns that uh, that we're talking about, and not the first governor general, I guess, that has had accusations like that. Uh, Adrian Clarkson, of course, uh, seemed to get in some hot water a few years ago because of some of her spending habits. Yes. But uh, as long as you're not breaching the law, uh, I, I mean, there's going to be a difference of opinion. I guess the question is, and we could segue nicely into ethics here, uh, Duff, uh, because if there's anybody in cabinet that wants to take a shot at the governor general for the the way she's acting or the way she's being training staff, uh, he who is without sin casts the first stone. Uh, there's an awful lot of concern about ethics within the the cabinet and within the government as well. Yes, very much so. Um, we have the the We Charity scandal as the latest example <clears throat> involving uh, the prime minister and his staff, and the finance minister and his staff. And Demarcy Watch testified before the House Ethics Committee. Yesterday, uh, what they're doing, um, the Finance Committee is actually examining how the decision was made to hand We Charity the uh, this sole source funding that would have been up to uh, almost $35 million for We Charity. And uh, the Ethics Committee is looking at how do you prevent it in the future from happening again. Because it was clear that the Prime Minister and the finance minister shouldn't have been at the final cabinet table. They've already apologized for that and said they, they shouldn't have been there, and I, I'm, uh, I'm positive they're going to be found guilty of violating the Conflict of Interest Act for doing that. But also, uh, we also know that uh, the staff of the prime minister's office and the staff of the finance minister were also participating in the process much earlier than that final cabinet meeting. And uh, that raises questions of other violations and there's also even questions of possible breach of trust by the prime minister and the finance minister, if depending on what the communication record shows in terms of uh, how much this process was possibly pushed or rigged in favor of We Charity, one of their family's uh, favorite charities for both families. Well, and of course, what this does is brings back into focus a number of the other things. It's uh, not lost on a lot of people, I guess, Duff, that uh, this is the third time that uh, the Ethics Commissioner, Mr. Dion, is investigating uh, the actions of, of the Prime Minister uh, in a rather short period of time, uh, <laughs> which has got a lot of people scratching their heads saying, well, didn't you learn from the first two occasions? Or, you know, but here we go again. Uh, how, how do you deal with something like this to try to send a message that this shouldn't be tolerated? Well, uh, one would think that uh, he would have already learned that, given You'd that think. both the previous scandals, the Aga Khan scandal and the SNC-Lavalin scandal, caused liberal support to drop by 5 to 10% in the polls. And they did win the last election, but they won 
fewer votes than the conservatives, just had them uh, better arranged to win more seats in the House, but they were reduced from a majority government to minority government. And one would think that would cause a prime minister and a finance minister who's also been found guilty of violating the law and been investigated uh, for other possible violations. You would think both of them would pay more attention to this law um, because they have a clear indication that that a certain percentage of liberal supporters uh, don't like this. And, and the polls are showing that again. Uh, they've dropped about 6%. And there's nothing... I mean, there's possibly other reasons. You never know exactly why voters are indicating their preferences, but this has been the biggest thing in the news, and and the change in the polls has come during this time period that the We Charity scandal has been in the news. Uh, what I was recommending yesterday is, first of all, close the loopholes. The conflict of interest law doesn't apply to 99% of cabinet decisions, and they're actually allowed to profit from their decisions and have a fi- direct financial interest and make a decision that will make them more money. That's how bad the act is. So close the loopholes so that they have to step aside when they have even the appearance of a conflict of interest, no matter what kind of decision they're making. And then uh, there's no penalty other than a public report that you violated the the law. And yes, there's public shaming from that and the political cost of loss of voter support. But this is a very important law. I mean, it, it's just below the criminal code anti-bribery uh, provisions in terms of guarant- uh, protecting the public's money and and uh, ensuring people are upholding the public trust and the public interest. So the penalty should be very high. And we recommend a one-year salary as the minimum penalty for violating these key ethics rules. And then the watchdogs need to be made more independent and need to be auditing people because they're not catching all sorts of wrongdoing. The, the ethics commissioner has never and the lobbying commissioner as well, they have never actually uh, found someone uh, through their own investigations or auditing who's violating the law. It's been the media or public uh, groups like Democracy Watch who have actually outed problems. So they're not doing their jobs as watchdogs if they're not doing inspections and audits. So you do those three things, strengthen the rules, the enforcement, and the penalties, and then maybe they'll pay attention to this law finally. Now, if you've been uh, watching the uh, the goings-on in Ottawa for many, many years right now, I was talking to an, another old political advisor that uh, we've had on the show many times before, and he said, look, push come to shove. Uh, this, this goes on all the time. This, these, we only hear about it every now and then. It's a rather cynical approach, I guess, to politics. But but is this really just the way that business is done behind closed doors in Ottawa? Well, it is because the system is the scandal, and it's not surprising that it encourages scandalous behavior. I mean, it is legal to be dishonest, to mislead voters, legal to be unethical, as I mentioned, to profit from your own decisions. It's legal to be excessively secretive and hide information the public has a clear right to know because we have this uh, Access to Information Act, as it's called, but it really should be called a guide to keeping information secret because it's so full of loopholes that uh, it allows you to deny the public's right to know. You know, these are our employees. We're paying for everything in the government operations, and yet the government says, oh, no, you don't have a right to know that. Well, yeah, of course we do. You're our employee. We, need to, we have a right to know everything you're doing on the job and what you're doing with our money and how all decisions are made and all the details. And then you have a right to be wasteful as well. It's legal to do sole source contracts uh, without any competition and allowing various organizations or people to bid on a contract for the public's money. And those loopholes should be tightened as well. And people should, all the government institutions 
should be required to check with the Auditor General when they start spending uh, a spending initiative and ask the Auditor General, are we following the rules? And if the Auditor General says no, then they would have to change their approach. If all these changes were in place and it was actually legally required to be honest, ethical, open, transparent, and waste-preventing, then that would change the culture and would, would stop this stuff. You're never going to stop bribery entirely or secret lobbying or government secrecy, but let's at least make it illegal because it's all legal right now. So it's not surprising when scandalous behavior is legal that you see scandalous behavior. Uh, and, and again, and this may sound like splitting hairs, but the difference between uh, what is a policy and what is a law uh, it, it, it would have huge ramifications. I mean, I, I agree. I don't think government should sole source anything. Uh, there should be an open competition, and, and you know, the best provider and, or the best applicant would, would win these situations as opposed to the way they're doing it. But that's only a guideline, if, from what I'm told from politicians, that you know, and they're going to follow it until they don't want to follow it anymore, and then they're going to do whatever they want because there's really nothing but a slap on the wrist when they do decide to go this way in, in situations like this. And that's right. That's right. Therein there's lies no, the frustration. There are no penalties for violating the ethics law, and no penalties for violating the spending uh, policy. Uh, and <clears throat> there should be, um, but there's a watchdog for for this the the uh, ethics law, the ethics commissioner, and the lobbying commissioner watching over the lobbyist role on decisions. Uh, and then there's the procurement ombudsman and the auditor general. And they can all issue public reports, but nobody is, uh, can be penalized by them. So that's key. Uh, but they also need to be doing audits in advance. You know, the auditor general does these after-the-fact audits, and they do them on uh, the auditor general audits most of the big government institutions once every five years. And all we see is, every five years, reports about the same problems again and again, and a commitment to clean things up. But nobody's fired, and nobody's disciplined, because the watchdogs uh, don't have that power. They're, they're all bark and no bite, and they need to be given bite. And so I called on the uh, members of the Ethics Committee yesterday to not only recommend in this report that they'll be coming out with on how to prevent these kind of situations, not only to recommend key changes in six areas of honesty and ethics and transparency and waste prevention, and as well as uh, enforcement and penalties and, and lobbying disclosure, but to actually work together jointly and just draft a bill and introduce it this fall in the House. And there's no reason why they can't do this. Uh, it's pr a proper role for, and was done in decades past where you would see jointly sponsored bills across party lines and recruit their colleagues and pass it and finally clean this stuff up. And if they don't do that, if all they do is issue a report with some recommendations and say, oh, the liberals are bad, that's what the opposition parties will say, and the liberals will say, oh, we're no worse than the Harper conservatives were, as if that's some great uh, thing to be boasting. Setting the bar pretty low, isn't it? Yeah, and if they don't actually introduce this bill, then they're just not serious about cleaning it up. And unfortunately, for the past 25 years, I've never seen a committee really serious about cleaning things up. They'll call for things, but then they don't focus on it. And this is the way to do it. And we're in a minority government, and bills like this can pass uh, if enough MPs get behind it, and the party leaders would not be able to resist. And we'd finally get rid of this undemocratic and corrupt system and clean up federal politics, as 80% of Canadians want.
I think what magnifies the frustration here, too, is, is the politicians who self-police uh, when it comes to things like budgets or audits of, of expenses or even the, the MP's expenses. Uh, they, they basically say, we'll look after this. Don't worry about this. Just trust us. Well, you know, we got this covered. Or, or they do issue reports, but half of the stuff is redacted. And this should be public information, but somebody behind those closed doors makes the determination that, no, the public doesn't need to see that part. Just black it out. Yeah, well, the Auditor General could go in and audit every MP at any time that the MPs are spending the public's money and the Auditor General has a full mandate to audit any institution that is spending the public's money. Unfortunately, the Auditor General has acted like a bit of a lapdog despite having this clear power and said, oh, well, Parliament is Parliament. They run their own affairs. The House has a committee called the Board of Internal Economy and the Senate has the same. And they're supposedly watching over each other. And they, they don't even operate openly those boards but also if it's a majority government then the uh, ruling party holds a majority of seats on that board and of course protects their own and goes after the opposition and if it's a minority government then it's the reverse Mm -hmm. but you're never really getting consistent law enforcement for all MPs or senators and uh, they're running things themselves and the Auditor General should just walk in and say I'm auditing you all try and stop me I mean are the MPs really going to go on a public campaign to say no we're, we, we're the Auditor General is not allowed to come in here and audit us I mean they look like fools like, like they're trying to hide all sorts of waste so hopefully the Auditor General will do that job hopefully all the watchdogs will start to do their job uh, better but one of the big problems that I called for change when I was testifying yesterday before the House Ethics Committee is that all of these watchdogs are chosen by the people they watch. Yep. They're chosen by cabinet ministers and top government officials. And uh, as a result, it's not surprising that uh, these people choose lapdogs instead of people with a really strong enforcement attitude. And that's one of the things that has to change. An independent commission with no politicians on it should be coming up with the short list of candidates, just two or three candidates that uh, would be uh, the candidates for these positions. And then cabinet can choose amongst those two or three. But with an independent commission made up of people not from the government, you would have a short list of people who were really serious about enforcing the law, and cabinet would be forced to choose one of those people, and, and then we'd get watchdogs instead of lapdogs. So in every way, the system is the scandal. And it has to be cleaned up in every way. Uh, All the testing that's been done about why people follow rules, it's because you're watched and because there's a chance of a penalty. And it's because there's extensive training showing you what's right and wrong. And all of those elements are currently missing from the federal uh, system. And as a result, it's not surprising to see people break the rules again and again. There's no we we got to break it off right now. Yeah, I know. Well, let's, let's leave it there for now. We'll see what kind of response they get, and hopefully uh, some of what you said at the committee yesterday may sink in with some of the members. Yes, Thanks, we'll as always, for the time. And I'll keep you up to date when the report I, comes out. We'll be watching for it online. Thanks, Duff. Thanks very much, Bill. Duff Conagher, of course, uh, co-founder of Democracy Watch. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.